Hello there, and welcome to this episode three of the Whistler Podcast. How are you doing? I hope you're uh, doing well. I uh, hope this little recording finds you tip top of the world. Um, loads coming up for you in the next however long. Uh, I try to keep a minimum of 30 minutes, uh, but somewhere around that 30 minute plus mark, so we shall see how we go. Uh, yeah, loads coming up for you. I'll tell you a little bit more about what I've got coming up for you shortly. But first of all, I'd like to say a big thank you to everyone who's um, been in touch, followed me on Twitter, uh, Facebook, etc. And emailed me at your thoughts, comments, opinions. Really do mean a lot. It kind of guides me. I can, you know, kind of figure out which way I should be heading and what you're liking, what you're not liking. So it really does mean a lot. Thank you so much for your continued support. If you'd like to get in touch... Uh, the way to remember really is Whistlercast, W-H-I-S-T-L-E-R-C-A-S-T. That's my Twitter handle, at Whistlercast, you can uh, find me there. And also if you want to uh, find my page on Facebook, that's at Whistlercast also. On these pages I will try and post as soon as I upload a new episode. So that's probably the best way of doing it. Also if you want to contact me, you can do it via those media I think that's right. Not mediums, is it? Media. Anyway, you can do it via that way. Or you can email me. I am whistlermail at yahoo.co.uk. Whistlermail at yahoo.co.uk. So just get in touch that way as well, if you'd like to. Right, what we've got coming up for you on this episode of The Whistler. Well, we're going to be looking at the smallest country in the world. I'm going to be talking to you about Don't With Cats, which is a Netflix mini series which is really really worth a watch if you're in the kind of macabre uh, mystery kind of thing it's really good we'll be looking at the mystery of bobby dunbar a little boy that went missing and then went unmissing and then actually was missing that's an interesting one and we'll be talking about some people that were leaving bundles of cash in i'm sorry if you can hear a beeping noise there's a wagon reversing right next to me at the moment but i don't know um yeah bundles of cash left in random places um people in a certain town in england have been wandering about finding two thousand pounds uh, just left there at random we don't know why well we do the mystery's been solved but i'll tell you more about that later and also um a really weird story about the queen consort of siam this is a really interesting one this is about uh, a rule that said that you do not touch a member of the royal family in Siam, you just do not physically touch them. It's punishable by death if you do. Kind of backfired for them as well. So uh, that's an interesting story coming up. Also, we're going to be kicking off by um, talking about a very strange kind of intruder. Not the ideal way to wake up in the middle of the night, if you know what I mean. Here we go. What's your biggest fear? Um, we've all got phobias, haven't we? Um, some of them rational, some of them irrational. For instance, a fear of spiders here in the UK particularly is irrational because spiders here in this country are harmless. No need to fear them. But we do, there's something in us that makes most of us not like spiders very much. We have a phobia. Uh, some people have a genuine phobia of ghosts. Uh, totally rational, there's no evidence whatsoever that ghosts even exist. Uh, but I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. Uh, for 
different reasons totally. Um, but yeah, it's an irrational fear. Some fears are rational. Um, heights maybe a irrational fear if you're on a roof of a tall building or something. It's rational to be uh, afraid of falling off. Um, well, so a fear of snakes is rational because they can bite. So a lot of them are poisonous. Fear of fire, rational. Um, a fear of intruders breaking into your house is, is rational as well because that can happen. And I'm sure it's one of the things we all fear is waking up in the night to hear someone moving about downstairs, rummaging through your property, or worse, intent on doing us harm. Um, which, <laughs> this little train of thought anyway, as, uh, was inspired by a news article I found and it's about uh, a man who has apparently been traumatised after waking up in the middle of the night to find an intruder sucking his toes. Hmm. The victim, uh, a 20-year-old, told the intruder that he didn't have any money, but the man responded that he didn't want cash, he just wanted to suck toes, according to a police report. Uh, They started fighting uh, the victim and the intruder, and... Uh, the suspect claimed he had a gun on him um, but he didn't pull one out and the victim managed to push him outside uh, after leaving the man smashed the victim's car windscreen and then fled according to the Brandenton Herald police were called to the scene uh, in the town of Bradenton I hope I pronounced that right which is in Florida in the US uh, on Christmas Eve and brought dogs in the hope of tracking down the foot fetishist no arrests have been made. Wow. They took swabs from between the victim's toes to try and identify him, but have not yet come up with any matches in um, any database that they hold. And there have been no similar cases reported in the area. Weird? Creepy? Strange, definitely. Um, what are your thoughts on that one? Have you heard of the country of Sealand? Hmm? I bet you haven't. And if you have, there's a reason why. It is the tiniest nation on the planet. And it's got its own wild family. And it's basically a platform in the sea. Uh, So, uh, here's the article which has come from ripleys.com. And it's the Principality of Sealand. Sealand, Sealand, I don't know. And it sat off the British coast for over 50 years. Though it's largely unrecognised throughout the world, it claims to be the smallest country in the world. The island, in inverted commas, measures just 15 by 40 yards, with just enough room for a small building and a helicopter landing pad. So the next part of the uh, article tells us a little bit about the origins of the country. Um... Uh, I'll just skim through it for you. At the height of World War II, the British military installed open-sea fortresses in the mouth of the Thames River. These forts provided anti-aircraft support and deterred German crafts from laying mines in British shipping channels. The fort Sealand now occupies was designated HM Fort Ruffs. 
Constructed at port, these structures were floated out to sea on hollow pontoons. Once they reached their destination, the pontoons were filled with water, sinking to the seafloor and anchoring the fort in place. The sealand structure was in operation within 30 minutes of being launched. Soldiers remained in the fort until 1956 when the fort was virtually abandoned by the British. So in the face of stringent broadcasting laws in the UK, pirate radio stations began operating from international waters. Uh, some of you may be aware of Radio Caroline, which I think was the most famous one, which was broadcast from a ship out at sea, uh, therefore uh, overcoming these stringent broadcasting laws. Now Fort Ruffs was the perfect candidate for a pirate radio station. It was just far away and, most importantly, was free to use. In 1966, pirate radio operator Roy Bates seized the radio tower from another pirate operator. In the ensuing crackdown on pirate broadcasters, Bates' team would defend the station with firearms and bombs. After dodging charges in British courts, he declared the sea fortress to be his own independent country, the Principality of Sealand. By 1975, Sealand had its own flag, currency, national anthem, passports and government. Bates installed his family as royalty and sells titles online. You can be a Duke, Countess or Knight of Sealand for a small fee. The Bates family has ended up back in the courts on several occasions but continues to be largely left alone by the authorities. Though they haven't been officially recognised worldwide, they have been made an exception in the expansion of British territory and from answering to British laws. In 1978, Alexander Achenbach led an invasion of Sealand. He hired a team of mercenaries to storm the platform, taking it by using speedboats, jet skis and helicopters. They took Bates' son, Prince Michael, hostage, but Michael was able to drive them off. Achenbach was taken prisoner and charged with insurrection. Dutch and German state departments got involved and though he was sentenced to a $35,000 fine, he was eventually released. The Sealand rebel government operates to this day in exile, campaigning against the Bates family rule. Everyone who helped defend the nation was inducted into Sealand Order of Knights, a title you now buy, and was sworn to protect Sealand when called upon. Nowadays, Sealand pops up in the news every once in a while. Rumours have spread about it being sold to internet companies or other would-be kings. But besides the short visit or music video shoot, the island solemnly stands as a steadfast bastion against authority and a beacon of independence. Wow, what a fascinating little story. I see a lot of uh, people put things on Twitter like, oh, any ideas what to watch? What can I, what can I watch on Netflix? Watch blah, 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 blah. I always recommend that they uh, listen to this podcast um, and I hope you do exactly the same. Uh, but on Netflix, um, what a choice of stuff. And I thought I might as well use this platform to tell you about any series that I particularly, or movies that I like, enjoy, got into, etc. Uh, even if there's some that I'm not so keen on, I'll give that a mention too in the... Uh, you know, vain attempt to be clear and parity. Parity, is that the word? Oh, I don't care. Um, 
so the series I want to talk to you briefly about uh, right now is called uh, it's got a naughty word in the title but it's Don't F With Cats basically it's a documentary it's three parts uh, they're about an hour long each and if you haven't seen it yet it's great it's really worth your time um, I don't know if you remember Making a Murderer did you see that one Netflix know how to make documentaries really really good especially ones that are about things that are a bit weird a little bit sinister things like that and uh, don't F with cats don't mess with cats shall we call it yeah um, <laughs> I don't want to swear too much on this podcast I don't know why I feel like anybody could be listening might even be somebody that I like and respect on it but don't mess with cats is basically about a group of people who set up a Facebook page to try to get to the bottom of a mystery. A mystery being a video which was posted online of a young man killing two cute little kittens. He put them in a, do you know those vacuum packing bags that you can buy? You know, you put, if you've got any old clothes or bedding and things that you want to put into storage, you put them in these bags and you use a vacuum cleaner to draw all the hair, all the air out of it and it kind of compresses it and it's it becomes airtight well he puts these two little kittens in the bag and draws the air out of it um the facebook group um they uh what do they do but they kind of look for evidence in the video of where this guy might be based and they try and trace who he is but he becomes aware that they are following him he may have even infiltrated the their page under a, a false name and he does more things uh, getting worse uh, to cats at first and then he moves over to posting a video of him actually hacking somebody to death, a human being um, true story really well told and the guy that is behind all this is, uh, well he's quite a character and it's really worth checking out, uh, if you haven't seen it um I recommend it. I recommend it. The language is a bit strong. Uh, the imagery, it doesn't show these videos in full. It shows the build up to them and it describes what happens in the video. But generally, you are, you're, not going to be, you're not going to be seeing anything, although it is quite disturbing what, you, what, what the people tell you as they're watching the video kind of thing. So, but it's, it's a story well worth looking at it, it twists and it turns and it's you know it, it just gets crazy um, and Netflix tell it in such a great way don't bombard you with info they let the the people who are involved actually tell the story it's really really good if you haven't seen it uh, give it a watch let me know your thoughts if you have seen it I'd love to hear what you thought of it don't don't mess with cats <laughs> nearly what did you think of it drop me a line let me know I'm going to relate a story to you now which caught my eye over the last week. It's not a new story, it's 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 quite an old story. It dates back over 100 years initially, uh, but the conclusion of the story happened much more recently. It's a really interesting story. So I thought I'd share it with you. It's called the Bobby Dunbar case. As I said, some of you may have heard of this, you may be familiar with it. Others, it may be more of a mystery, but it's, it's, uh, it is quite a mystery in the end. 
So the story goes that there's a kid, Robert Dunbar, affectionately known to his family as Bobby, and he was the first son born to Lessie and Percy Dunmar of Opelousas, Louisiana. He was born in April 1908. Now, when he was four years old, the Dunbars took a fishing trip to nearby Swayze Lake in St. Landry Parish, Louisiana. On August the 23rd, while on that trip, Bobby Dunbar disappeared. After an eight-month search, authorities located a man named William Cantwell Walters, who had been seen travelling through Mississippi with a boy who appeared to match the description and age of Bobby Dunbar. Walters, when questioned, claimed that the boy was not Bobby Dunbar, but actually Charles Bruce Anderson, or Bruce, as his family called him, who was the son of a woman who worked for his family. He said that the boy's mother was named Julia Anderson, and that she had allowed him to take her son on a trip to visit some of his relatives. She, uh, Nonetheless, Walters was arrested, and authorities sent for the Dunbars to come to Mississippi and attempt to identify the boy. Now, newspaper accounts from the time differ with regard to the initial reaction between the boy and Leslie Dunbar when they were first introduced to each other after the eight months apart. Uh, one almost certainly fictional account indicated that the boy immediately shouted, Mother! upon seeing her, and the two then embraced. Another said that the boy only cried and quoted Leslie Dunbar as saying that she was unsure whether he was her son or not. Other newspaper accounts quote both the Dunbars as initially stating doubts as to the boy's identity. There were similar contradictions in newspaper accounts of the boy's first sightings of the Dunbar's younger son, Alonzo, with one newspaper claiming, once again most likely fictional, that the boy recognised Alonzo instantly, called him by name and kissed him, with another saying the boy showed no sign of recognising Alonzo. The next day, after bathing the boy, Lessie Dunbar said she positively identified his moles and scars and was then certain that he was her son. The boy returned to Opelousas with the Dunbars to a parade, with much fanfare celebrating the homecoming. Streets lined with people and a big party. Uh, Bobby Dunbar is back with his family. Now, shortly thereafter, Julia Anderson of North Carolina arrived to support Walter's contention that the boy was in fact her son Bruce. Anderson was unmarried and worked as a field hand for Walter's family. Now, according to newspaper accounts, Anderson was presented with five different boys uh, when she came forward who were of the same approximate age and description as her son, including the boy who had been claimed by the Dunbars. When the boy in question was presented, he apparently gave no indication that he recognised her. She asked whether he was the boy who was found with William Walters, but she was not given an answer. And eventually she declared that she wasn't 100% sure if it was her son or not. Now, upon seeing the boy again the next day when she was allowed to undress him, she indicated a stronger certainty that the boy was indeed her son, Bruce. However, word had already spread about her failure to positively identify him on the first attempt. This combined with the fact that newspapers questioned her moral character in having had three children out of wedlock led to Anderson's claims being dismissed. With no money to sustain a long court battle, Anderson returned home to North Carolina. She later returned to Louisiana for Walter's kidnapping trial to attest his innocence and push for the court to determine that the boy was her son. At the trial, she became acquainted with the residents of the town of Poplarville, Mississippi, many of whom 
had also come to proclaim Walter's innocence. Now, the reason this happened was because that William Walters and the boy had spent quite a bit of time in Poplarville during their travels, and the community there had come to know them well, with a number of them asserting that they had seen Walters with the boy prior to the disappearance of Bobby Dunbar. Despite their testimony, the court concluded that the boy was, in fact, Bobby Dunbar. Walters was convicted of kidnapping and imprisoned, while the boy remained in the custody of the Dunbar family and lived out the remainder of his life as Bobby Dunbar. So they lived happily ever after. Now, after the trial, the people of Poplarville welcomed Anderson and she began a new life there, eventually marrying and having seven children. According to her descendants, she became a devout Christian, helped found a church and served as nurse and midwife to the small community. Although her children indicated that her life was a happy one after settling in Poplarville, they said that she nonetheless spoke often of her lost son and that their family always regarded him as having been kidnapped by the Dunbars. After Walters had served two years of his prison term for kidnapping, his attorney was successful in appealing the conviction and Walters was granted the right to a new trial, which prosecutors declined due to costs and released him. He died April 7, 1945 and was buried in Pueblo, Colorado, beside his wife. Now, the grandchildren of Walter's brother reported that during their childhood, he typically visited their grandfather a few times per year and that during these visits, Walter's always maintained his innocence regarding the kidnapping charge. The boy, raised as Bobby Dunbar, married, had four children of his own and died in 1966. Now, years after Bobby Dunbar's death, one of his granddaughters, Margaret Dunbar Cutright, began her own investigation of the events, pouring through newspaper accounts, interviewing Julia Anderson's children and examining the notes and evidence prevented by Walter's defence attorney for his kidnapping trial. Although Cutright had initially hoped to prove that her grandfather was a Dunbar, her research ultimately led her to doubt her belief. In 2004, after an Associated Press reporter approached the family about the story, Bob Dunbar Jr. consented to undergoing DNA tests to resolve the issue. The results showed that Dunbar Jr. was not related by blood to his supposed cousin, the son of Alonzo Dunbar, who was the younger brother of Bobby Dunbar. Senior, sorry. Since the DNA testing is conclusive, the fate of the real Bobby Dunbar remains unknown. What a story. That absolutely breathtaking so to cut a long story which i've already gone into detail short little boy goes missing uh eight months later the uh, a boy matching his description is found with a, a, a bloke on his travels and they arrest the guy for kidnapping even though wow the he's the, the boy's mother says yeah he's fine he can be with him that's not a problem and they take the kid and give it to the original Dunbar family and they bring him up as Bobby Dunbar. Wow, it's interesting. If you want to look into it, Google it. There are photos, comparison photos of the two boys and it's, it's quite a mystery. It's really intriguing. And it just really caught my attention um, over the last week. So I thought, you know, I'll share that with those guys. Uh, it's, it's great, isn't it? Absolutely fascinating. The story of the mysterious case of Bobby Dunbar. It's a beauty. Oh,
Uh, I'd like to take uh, this opportunity, this little part of the show, just to thank you, uh, those of you that have uh, followed me on Twitter or on Facebook. Um, it does mean a lot. I know that these pages are very, very uh, scant at the moment. There's not much on there. But over time, hopefully they'll develop into something a little bigger. So thank you so much for doing that. Thank you also for listening uh, to these podcasts. It does mean a lot to me. Um, the reason I'm mentioning this is because I have had a few uh, people getting in touch asking why the stories I, I tell you are not topical. Why can't I do something more topical? Somebody tweeted me a few weeks ago saying, what about um, uh, Harry and Meghan's decision to um, step back from the front line of the royal family, etc., split the time between two countries, blah, blah, blah. And what do I think about the Labour leadership contenders and things like that? And I do get a lot of questions. The reason I'm not trying to make things too topical is because I, I want the podcast to be pretty timeless. I don't want them to be in a certain time frame. So when I find uh, these new stories that really interest me, hopefully they'll still be interesting in two or three years' time. Um, I don't want people who uh, further down the line, hopefully if I'm still doing this, to say, oh, go and listen to some older episodes and not really know what I'm talking about because I've been talking about things that are very topical. Also, a few of these are recorded uh, a little bit in advance, so maybe up to two weeks in advance of them actually being published. Uh, therefore, um, if I do pass comments on something, uh, such as the label leadership uh, contenders, uh, by the time it gets been published, <laughs> they might have changed, people might have dropped out, opinions might have changed, things, all sorts might have happened. So I, I try and keep the uh, the stories I cover uh, not too topical, pretty much of interest for everyone all the time. Obviously, we are keeping an eye on throughout the year. Uh, I don't know if you remember from episode one. The, um, the what, what I called it, the person of the year. We're going to have a whistler person of the year. So... Um, don't forget if you want to nominate or a, a person of the year you can do it has to be somebody that's in the news and um, somebody that's achieved something this year or done something to make his own thing because we were saying in episode one that Greta Thunberg won the uh, 2019 person of the year in Time magazine I don't agree with that so uh, because I don't think she's done anything and there are people far more worthy of that so uh that is the only really topical thing we'll be looking at is just keeping an eye on the news to see who's standing out at the moment have we got anyone i don't know at whistlercast is how you can find us on uh, twitter and facebook so um get in touch with your suggestions for that and i hope that answers the question as to why uh, i'm not doing stories that are too topical i will do stories that i think might have a little bit of staying power um but uh, I'm not going to do anything as in that just happened today or yesterday because by the time people listen to this podcast you know, I might, it might be recorded a week or two in advance but it might be listened to years later and I still want it to be interesting to people then uh, rather than just here and now does that clear things up? I hope so thanks for that, thanks for indulging me there
how would you feel if you were walking down the street? This is a silly question, by the way, because I think I know the answer. How would you feel if you were walking down the street and you found on the floor or in a hedge or in a wall somewhere £2,000? £20 notes, meticulously packed, bundled together, and there was £2,000. Imagine that. So what would you do with that? Mm, pick it up, keep it. Would you hand it in? Uh, now, imagine if you decided... Well, well, whatever you decided to do, you pick it up, you carry on walking, and you find another bundle, £2,000. In fact, what if there was little bundles of £2,000 just left all over the village? Well, this actually happened in a place called... Blackhall Colliery and there's been a mystery who's been leaving these wads of cash they've been left random places apparently in this village since 2014 so for a good five years plus but two good Samaritans have identified themselves to police as the mystery benefactors who left tens of thousands of pounds on the streets of a tiny village in the hope that it would be picked up by people in need So the village of Blackhall Colliery, which is in County Durham, became the focus of global intrigue when detectives revealed the bundles of cash totaling at least £26,000 had been left anonymously scattered through the village, often on pavements, since 2014. Everyone in the normally sleepy coastal community seemingly had a theory about who who might be behind the apparent acts of kindness. Was it a lottery winner? A drug dealer seeking to get rid of their ill-gotten gains? Or was it someone elderly and possibly vulnerable? Well, the mystery's been solved. Detectives revealed that two people had come forward to say that they were responsible for leaving the meticulously prepared bundles of £20 notes, each time amounting to about £2,000, around Blackhall Colliery over the last six years. The identity of the pair would remain a secret, Durham Police said, as they had no desire to receive public praise for their generosity. Both benefactors had recently received unexpected windfalls and wanted to give something back, the force said. One of the Good Samaritans told officers that they felt an emotional connection to the village after being helped by one of its residents and wanted to repay the kindness. Now, it was a mystery that had stumped detectives for years. Officers carried out numerous interviews, interrogated the local bank and post office staff and even tested the cash for fingerprints, but the circumstances surrounding the windfalls remained a riddle. Police praised the honesty of 13 people who had found £2,000 bundles and handed them into police. The money was returned to them when no one came forward to claim it. Detectives have confirmed the money had been deliberately left in locations where it might be found by people in need, including pensioners and people who had fallen on hard times. Now, I don't know what kind of place that would be, but that's where it was left. Trust me, I don't know that kind of place because I'd be there. (laughs) You never know, on the off chance. The anonymous duo, I mean, obviously, to to hand in to police, obviously. The anonymous duo, who worked together to leave the money, said they would often wait to make sure the cash was picked up, but had never sought any thanks for their donations. It's not known if they'll continue to leave bundles in future, but any that are found and handed into police will continue to be returned to the finder. DC John Forster of Peterlee CID said, I'm very pleased we have an answer to this mystery, and I'm glad we can now definitively rule out the money being linked to any crime or vulnerable person. I'd like to thank the Good Samaritans for getting in touch, and also to the honest residents of Blackhall who have continued to hand money in.
we would encourage anyone who may find another bundle to continue to hand it in. All the previous bundles have been returned to the finder. Now here's a moral dilemma for you. If you found £2,000 just thrown about on the street, what would you do? Would you keep it? Would you hand it in? Interesting. Let me know. Drop me a line. Tell me. What would you do? So whilst browsing the internet for some weird and wonderful stories to share with you, dear, dear listeners, um, I came across a story that really caught my eye uh, due to the um, kind of the the bizarre way that that it turned out. And is it something that backfired? Someone's, I don't know, sense of superiority kind of backfired, maybe. Now you're going to have to forgive me on pronunciations here. I do apologise in advance. I'm going to struggle here but it's about the queen consort of Siam from the 19th century now her name was Sunanda Kumariratana please forgive me Um, she was born in 1860 and like I said she's the queen consort of Siam she was the daughter of Siamese king Mongkut Rama IV and princess consort Piam she was the half-sister and first wife of King Chulalongkorn, Rama V of Siam, which is now Thailand. The king's other two wives were her full sibling younger sisters, Queen Savang Vadhana and Queen Shavava Bongsi. Now you're going to have to... I, I do apologise for that bit. Um, it's not 100% important, the information that I've just told you, but it's just to give you a bit of an idea of the kind of person she was, the kind of life that she had growing up. Now, the story goes that touching the Queen of Siam used to be punishable by death until the law itself caused three deaths in 1880. And this is Sunanda Ratana. She would have been 19 years old at the time, so awful really. But uh, Queen Sunandana had many witnesses when her boat capsized, but she, her daughter, and her unborn baby still drowned due to a royal guard who warned that touching her was forbidden. Can you imagine that? She's there, she's drowning, she's pregnant. Um, Her daughter's there. They're all drowning. There are witnesses there. There are people that can help her. They can save these people. But a guard warns, you touch her, it's forbidden, you will be executed. They obviously didn't do anything. And she, her daughter, and obviously unborn child were killed. How awful. Now, that's what I mean about a sense of maybe regality or superiority backfiring. I'm so important you can't touch me. And then, obviously not taking consideration that sometimes you might need to be touched in life uh, because it could very well save it. Uh, Now, the Royal Guard, who warned that touching Queen Sunanda was forbidden and you do it under pain of death really he was put to death himself for being too strict the twist being that if he'd saved her by touching her obviously he would have been put to death anyway makes you wonder if there's any other way that 
they could have saved her. You know, although I don't know the situation, I don't know if it was possible to give her something to grab onto. I, I, I really honestly don't know. You know, some kind of le- a, a pole or did they have poles in those days? You know, a, a tree branch or see, I don't even know if we're in a pond or on the sea. You know, something I should have researched this a lot more thoroughly. Um, but the grief-stricken Chula Longcorn later erected a memorial to her and their unborn child at Bangpa in Palace. So a tragic story, really. Um, something that could have, you know, could have not had to happen were it not for this superiority and this, uh, this, this, like I said, this deity-like. Um, what's the word? What I'm trying to think of. These people that consider themselves almost godlike in what they, what they are, who they are, and it totally, totally backfired. It's a heartbreaking story, really but hopefully one with a moral. Would you look at the time? Whoa, wow, doesn't that go quickly when you're actually interested in something? Hmm, very good. Uh, anyway, uh, it's that time, I'm afraid. I'm going to have to round things up here for another episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for taking the time out to uh, let me be a part of your day. I hope you've enjoyed the last half hour or so. Uh, as much as I have, it fascinates me. I'm really interested in all these little weird stories and things that you don't otherwise really get a hold of. It's, it's nice to you know pick up on things like this and get your teeth into these stories let me know your thoughts on them i mean some of these stories that i've told you today there may be different versions of them i may have missed some facts out let's have your uh, thoughts on them uh, be very interested to know what you think about various things you know how to get in touch with me i'm on twitter at whistlercast you can find me on facebook at whistlercast also or you can email me whistlermail at yahoo.co.uk so like i said at the start of the show uh, but a reminder never hurts does it don't forget you can follow me and join me on facebook and everything and um, thank you once again for your time and i hope you'll join me next time when i'll be doing what i do now just delving into the internet finding out some stories that interest me and hoping they'll interest you see you then